and welcome to The Data Wranglers, a conversation about the latest trends in data engineering, hot takes, and insights on the data industry. I'm your host, Joe Hellerstein. And I'm Jeffrey Hare. Today on the podcast, we'll welcome Zach Pike, founder of Magnetic Data Science. Zach is a veteran of the marketing analytics industry, and most recently was CIO of a well-established marketing agency. Zach has worked across more than 45 brands and 25 agencies in almost every industry, having helped hundreds of marketers reduce the waste and uncertainty that is rampant in this industry. And Zach is an old hand at data wrangling for sure. So welcome, Zach. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It's good to have you. I think to get people started, you know, sort of a, a opener, um, when you describe your job at parties, uh, how do you talk about what you do? <laughs> That's a good question. Kind of depends on who I'm talking to. But I mean, at the core, I try to help marketers reduce waste and uncertainty in their campaigns. That's what I've done for the last 15 years in this industry. It's still a big problem today. And I mean, that's 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 really it. And the way I do that is usually with some form of data science uh, in the mix. And you guys know that can mean a lot of different things. But in a nutshell, that's it. And when you talk about waste and marketing, give, give our listeners a sense of what might be wasteful marketing behavior. Yeah. So in the marketing space, depending on what study you look at, there's roughly $50 billion wasted every year. It can be higher than that, but that's kind of the minimum depending, you know, uh, across all the studies on this subject. That's money that a company has spent thinking they're driving customers that they're really not. It was spent against the wrong people or the wrong channel or in the wrong part of the country. And unfortunately, the industry has made it really easy to waste that money. And so one of the one of our tools as marketers in that uh, endeavor is data. And I've spent my career in this crazy marketing data world. And so that's what I push people to use, whether they're working with me or not is, hey, we've got to get our data together. That is going to empower you to figure out, okay, what channel did I spend a bunch of money in that didn't pan out? Or what customer segment did I spend that against that was the wrong segment? Or what creative did I use that that you know ended up not resonating with the customer. There's there's so many different factors in that equation. You know, it's it's very overwhelming for for a lot of people. So let's say I uh, I'm a baby food company and I get convinced to put up an ad on SportsIllustrated.com or something like that. Right. How do I know that that was wasted money? Well, it's. Uh, there's a there's a process you really should go through. So if we're just if we're randomly putting out ads based on what a salesperson in the marketing industry tells me, which is a lot of times how it happens, or my agency tells me to put the money here or whatever. Um, one, we need to make sure that there's a reason for that. Like if I'm a baby food company putting it on SportsIllustrated.com, why am I doing that? Who reading Sports Illustrated is looking for baby food, and is that the person making this the decision on baby food? And there's lots of other questions you could ask, but it, it, my method, and really this should be everybody's method is to test that endeavor. I mean, we should never just go out and spend money. We should, there should always be a testing component to it. The stuff we learned in grade school about the scientific method for whatever reason is not very popular in marketing. We don't define a hypothesis. Okay. If I'm going to spend this money here, what do I think is going to happen? Then I go measure. Did that actually happen? You know, there's some parameters in that measurement process, but that 
you know, most, I shouldn't say most, there are a lot of marketers out there who don't even know if they're wasting money. They don't know what their waste factor is. They might be wasting zero and they might be wasting their entire budget. But if you're just going out and spending money, there's no way, there's no way to know. You've got to test against it. So Zach, to put some more color around this, um, I'm wondering if you can share one of the more interesting clients you've worked with. And if you can't mention their name, then perhaps you can describe their business and take it from there. Yeah. So there, I've worked a lot, across a lot of different companies. Um, I definitely can't say the name, which I'd love to, but it's a, it's a <laughs> company with thousands of locations across the U.S., um, physical locations. And I've worked on a couple of these brands over the years, and they tend to be very interesting because what you find is there are a lot of reasons why a location may or may not perform well. Right. So mm -hmm. it, let's take Walmart as an example. It's not Walmart, but this is a good proxy. There's Walmarts all over the country. There's Walmarts in, you know, uh, affluent neighborhoods. There's Walmarts in less affluent neighborhoods. There's Walmarts in uh, red states. There's Walmarts in blue states. There's they're it, like they they span the spectrum of demographic, you know, uh, dimensions uh, across the country. Mm -hmm. If you had $1,000 to put against every Walmart, not every Walmart is going to respond the same way to that $1,000. Some will respond really well. Some won't respond at all. And so like this client I'm referencing here was in a similar situation. They were peanut butter spreading their marketing budget across all of their locations. Mm -hmm. Every location needs an equal opportunity to perform. So I'm going to give them all X amount of money over X campaign. Well, through this actually ended up to be a year to two years of testing. But through all that testing, we found that there were a segment of stores that performed really well when you spent money against them. They would, you know, the product you were you were pushing would shoot through the roof. You would see it in the data. And there was a segment of stores that would not perform. No matter what we did, that store was never going to get a bump from the media. So then you start asking the question, well, why is that? Right. Just that learning alone is something a lot of companies don't have. But now if I know, okay, I've got these, let's say 200 locations that I just can't get them moving with my marketing budget, should I be spending money against them? Probably not. And then if I can make that decision, because that's always hard politically, but if I can make that decision, then why are they not responding? Let's go look at all the other variables with this store, the demographics of the trade area, the time of year, the product mix that they sell in their store, because it's always different the customers that are there, the customer perception of the store, because there's some that we take Walmart, there's some Walmarts that are run really well. And there's some that aren't run so well, their bathrooms are dirty, shelves aren't stocked as well. There's lots of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Once you start asking those types of questions, you can then start to find the real problem, go fix that problem operationally, then come back to the marketing world and start spending the dollars. This this is a real scenario that actually happened with this client I'm talking about. They found those operational variables. Three of them they couldn't control because they were trade area specific issues, store in a wrong location, uh, wrong type of customers living around the trade area, stuff like that. But then there were two that they could control. These were operational issues in the store. We go out and fix those issues. Now we start spending marketing dollars against that store again. They start performing and we're, you know, everybody's happy. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you're putting the science in data science here, and as in the scientific method of hypothesis and testing. And so clearly measurement is a key component of that process. And I think you started um, um, to get into this, but I want to push further. You know, how do you get the measurement data for your clients? Yeah, measurement is, for whatever reason, it's still a challenge. Like, we have all this data. So when I started in this, we didn't have all the data. Right. When I started, it was back when Google was just transitioning from Urchin and like people were looking at server logs to understand mm -hmm. <laughs> stuff that was happening on their website. And uh, there was all kinds of crazy stuff happening. But today there's so much data that the challenge is just corralling it all, like getting your hands wrapped around it. I talk to big companies all the time that don't have their data together. And a lot of times I think it's because... In a large company, the people who handle the data are in the IT group, right? They're managing the corporate database that has all the operational data in it, sometimes lots of customer data. For whatever reason, that group generally doesn't get into the marketing world very often. They're not mm -hmm. processing the Google Ads data and the Facebook ads and you know all this stuff because it's really difficult. It comes from 20 different locations. It's all in 20 different formats. Impressions mean different things across different channels. Video views mean different things. And then like you got these crazy marketing people wanting to tie it to business results. So now you got to go figure out a way to join it to all your operational and customer and business data. And then that's another headache. So like that, the, you know, what people say is data scientists, data analysts spend most of their time on preparing data, organizing it, getting it cleaned up. With all the tools we have today, that's still a problem. It's still a problem. And, you know, um, I've been on the agency side and the brand side, and it, it seemed like there's a lot more tools available. I think there are definitely marketers who have figured out the, the secret sauce to kind of solving that problem, but there's still a lot of them that don't. And so I actually spend a lot of my time in that realm, even though I'd like to be doing the analysis stuff. I help a lot of people just organize their data, just get it together, cleaned up in one spot so that you can use it later on. That totally makes sense. Um, and, you know, there's so much in there I'd love to unpack. One, yeah. I, let's start at the, like the, the furthest downstream, man. One of the things you alluded to is not just that there's tons of data, but that knowing what you're using the data for mm -hmm. in a particular scenario is really critical. And you, you sort of said, like, look, if you're just the general purpose IT person who manages data systems, you won't understand the use case. Right. Do you get scenarios where you see the same data sets used for multiple different things, each of which requires kind of that context? Yeah, I think, um, you know, e even if you think about just a general business intelligence use case, and let's just, since I'm talking about this marketing data stuff, we can stay there. Even something as simple as like Facebook ads data could be used for a lot of different things. You've probably got a reporting component to it, which if you're doing reporting, we want it to be automated. We want it to be standardized so a lot of people can understand it. And part of that is operationalizing that on as it's coming out of Facebook ads. So like I have always been a proponent of I don't want humans touching the the transfer of data. Let's let machines do that. Machines are great at doing repetitive processes over and over again, the same every time. Humans suck at that. So let's not insert humans <laughs> into that process. So if you're doing reporting, like you've got to make sure that that side of it, the ETL or ELT or however you're going to do that is, is rock solid. 
But then if you're, you're also using that data for intelligence analysis, hypothesis development, which is a much more like exploratory freeform type role, you've still got to have it, in my opinion, you still have to have it all together in one spot. My approach has always been to automate that process. But you're, you're asking, like, it needs to be set up in a way that you can ask a lot of different questions really quickly, questions you don't know that you're going to need to ask. And that's what a lot of people forget is, yes, I want this nice structured data set, but the questions I ask once I get that data set ready are going to be very different than the questions I ask two months from now. I don't even know what I'm going to ask two months from now because I'm going to be so much smarter. And that's, you know, I think also a place where you could like someone who doesn't understand this can get into trouble. And I don't want to rag on an IT group because I love those people. But if you're working with someone who's separated from the use case, they are going to do exactly what you need them to do. I need this table structure or this data model. They're going to build exactly that. Where someone who can who has done this before can say, okay, yes, I need that, but I also need the flexibility to go further. I need the flexibility to do things that I don't expect today. And this, you know, then you talk about speed and resources and you can get into all kinds of stuff. But, um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's just one example where you've got two use cases that are very, very different. And in my opinion, uh, kind of require different solutions. So you said this thing that I just loved. You said, you talked about questions you don't know you're going to need to ask. Mm-hmm. So that is like uh, the scientific mindset. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just awesome. Um, and I wonder, because um, I get pushback on this, I wonder, is that a permanent state of mind for, not just for you because you're kind of a uh, hired gun, but for your customers? Or do, do those customers like really want to get to a set and forget pipeline and then stop experimenting? Uh, I think... I think that there are a lot of people who like the idea of the set and forget because you solve the problem, you move on to the next problem. In our line of work, it's like nothing is ever totally done. <laughs> so being able to solve a problem feels really good. But I've, I don't know if this is just a function of like who I've ha- somehow just worked with over time. I've worked with a lot of people who understand that it's not set and forget. It's got to be this fluid dynamic process that is going to change, not always because I want it to change. I mean, let's, we'll stay on Facebook ads because we're talking about them. Facebook has changed things, right? (laughs) There is different data today available than there was two years ago in, in Facebook. And in fact, definitions of metrics are different today than they were two years ago. And so like you in the in the marketing world specifically, and this goes to I mean I've got a lot of experience in business intelligence. This is the same there. Stuff changes. If you're doing it right, your consumers of the information should be changing their questions. Like I said, I've got like smart level five today. Six months from now, after I have all this data, I should be at smart level seven and then eight and then working my way up. My questions will get harder as I go. The data required to answer those questions will get more complex as you go. If it's, I I do have some customers who we built like a like a report as an example that wasn't very flexible and it, it served their needs today and that's what they wanted. But now they're asking questions like, well, hey, I'd love to know this. Yes, we can do that, but we didn't we didn't set anything up like that. We have you know we should have been thinking about that all along. 
So um, you used the word earlier, corralling data. And as you know, as the, uh, the, the name of the podcast might suggest, we tend to say uh, data wrangling. Yeah. So any thoughts? What's with all this ranching analogies? You know, is it our restlessness? Uh, is it something else? Uh, what do you see on, on the marketing side of this? Yeah, I have. Uh, I don't know. I mean, um, the I've always I've actually always heard the term wrangling even before I knew about trifecta. Um, I had a, a I worked with a group that talked about data wrangling all the time. Um, I don't know why we use uh, those terms, probably because we're thinking of like a bunch of cattle in a pen and trying to get them uh, moving in the right direction. It's the same thing. Uh, and the marketing, I mean, I'm a little biased because I've spent a ton of time in marketing. And this is, I deal with a lot of point of sale data as well. So I process data from big restaurants and big retailers, Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart. And it, it's the same problem there. It doesn't matter if I'm like processing data from Google and Facebook and TikTok and YouTube. They're all different. But Walmart's point of sale data is different than Home Depot's point of sale data. And Home Depot's is different than Lowe's. And Lowe's is different than Petco. So the the problem, the real problem is that there's no standards. And we're never going to mm -hmm. have standards, right? We can't ever, we would never get all these companies to agree on anything. But with everyone making their own decisions on how data should be structured. And Google doesn't care if you're advertising on Facebook. They want you advertising on Google. So they're, all their tools and processes and stuff is set up to keep you in that, that ecosystem. Facebook's the same way. They've got a bunch of tools and processes to keep you in their ecosystem. But the reality is most people advertise across both. So you have to then suck all that data out of those two platforms into your platform uh, to actually use it. And that's just a problem, you know, regardless of how you're spending your money. But it all, I mean, it all comes down to these companies are making the decisions that's in their best interest to keep customers spending money with them. I don't really care if you're trying to integrate this data with other, with other platforms. In fact, it might be in some of their best interest to make it more difficult for you to integrate the data because you might figure out that their platform isn't as good as platform B that you're, you know, evaluating. Yeah, I, I think this is a really uh, excellent point in that, you know, I tend to think of, you know, wrangling challenges around, you know, A, that the data is not static typically mm -hmm. and more, moreover, like our goals are not static, you know, as you were, were painting. But then there's also where is the data coming from and then what, is, what do the platforms want you to do creates this, you know, a, additional picture on, on what you can and can't do and, and how difficult it is to achieve. Um, so that leads me to wonder, you know, what do you see as... Um, particularly new or modern challenges in data wrangling? You know, what, what do you see is changing out there these days? Yeah, I think, I honestly think one of the challenges is that there are new tools available. Mm. So, you know, if we think back several years ago, there weren't a ton of tools to make this easy. So you were like writing your own extractors from these kind of thrown together APIs, and then you were writing, you know, your own logic inside your database or however you were processing the data to uh, get it usable. I honestly do think that there, we're in a world now where we have a lot of great tools to make this process easier, but there are, there are, there is a spectrum on how valuable those tools are. There are some tools that are really good at something specific, right? They do ETL really well, or they do, prep of the data really well, or they do something else, you know, data visualization really well. 
But then you have on the other end of the spectrum, these tools that claim to do everything well. And that almost never works out. It almost never works out that this tool says, okay, yes, I connect all the data. I handle all the transfer. I handle all the prep. I handle all the visualization. And I let you do machine learning on top of it. Mm -hmm. I've used those tools. It almost never, like they never do anything really, really spectacular. My approach has always been, let's select a tool that does one or two things amazing. Let's go out and source that tool. And then we'll stitch things together on our own to, to serve our needs. You know, uh, Tableau software is an example. Great for visualization. You can do some pretty cool analysis inside of it, but they also have connectors into source data systems that I've never been a fan of. They're not great. And, you know, so that's like, and I'm a Tableau fan. I've used it for a really long time, but I think that that is, in my opinion, probably the biggest challenge, even, even though getting the data is still a challenge, organizing it is still a challenge. I think it's just, figuring out what tools you're going to use in that process. Assuming you've made it over the hump of understanding that you actually need tools to do it. I think there are plenty of places out there where they've still got their poor database admin, like trying to transfer this data in and he or she's writing their code on top of it and then spitting out these static tables to a marketing analyst or whatever. I think that still happens a lot. And I mean, even since, you know, we're talking about Trifacta, even with a tool like Trifacta, when I was at uh, my last employer, we didn't have a data engineer. We were processing billions and billions of rows of data for some gigantic companies with no data engineer, no database admin, because we had employed a technology stack that made it easy. I had a team of analysts. We were cross-functional. So some of us were good at machine learning. Some were good at report building, stuff like that. But it was... Almost everything after the data was in the database is where we spent our effort and time and learning and stuff like that because we could lean on tools to handle that stuff for us. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's kind of a long-winded answer that I think it's great we have all this technology, but I think it's a challenge too. That is really interesting. We talked about that. Your previous employer sounds like it was a pretty big shop and also sounds like at least some of the folks in the org were pretty technical um, and some less so. But I'm, I'm kind of curious when you talk about these tools, you know, what's your take on, say, low code visual tools versus people hand coding with specialized libraries, um, mix and match, uh, interoperability? Talk to me about that whole ecosystem. Sure. Yeah. So I am a huge fan of low code stuff, um, even though I actually am one of those weird people that enjoys writing SQL code and I enjoy doing things inside Python. Um, I'm a nerd for this, this like area, but when you're building a team of people who need to help other people make decisions off of that data, you can take an approach of, I'm going to build this really awesome cross-functional team. And I'm going to have one person on data engineering and one person on managing the database and one person, you know, like that, or, you can take an approach of, I'm going to have people who really understand how to empower other people with data, right? So if we're working with a bunch of marketing people, they are strategic, creative. They're like that side of the world. You need someone to help them interface with the data. My approach has always been to focus on that realm and then empower those people with the tools they need to handle the more technical side of that world, which is where the low code stuff comes into play. So that was one of the reasons um, I've always been a fan of Trifacta because I can, I can take 
a marketing analyst who is really good in Tableau, um, understands Excel really well, uh, can do analysis on his or her own of the data exploratory analysis, descriptive type stuff. And I can say, hey, we've got this new client coming on board or we've got this new project. There are going to be six or seven data sources. Go find those data sources. And they can, you know, it's not going to be like, a standardized thing across a gigantic organization that a hundred people are going to use. But for that specific situation, it doesn't require like this massive budget investment, this massive time investment. And I am also a big believer that the person using the data, if they're the one also sourcing it and organizing it and get it cleaned up, it makes them a lot smarter when they come, when it comes time to go to use it. When I'm just handed a table that I didn't have any, hand in setting up or building or really understanding why it was there. I just don't think the output is as good. And so you're, you're never, and again, this is all my opinion, but you really should not take that person who understands the strategy of how to explore data and empower someone with it and try to make them a technical database developer. I don't think that's a good path for that person. So I like to put tools in front of them that will allow them to do most of that technical database stuff. And then the way that we always handled it was if they ran into a situation where the tools they had, they were either struggling or couldn't figure it out. They would then come to someone more technical, which in most cases was me on the team um, to then either help them figure out what the problem was or put in a different solution there. You know, there are some times where we wrote complex queries and big query and, uh, needed those for certain reasons, but yeah, that's, that's my philosophy on the whole thing. And, um, I think it's worked out pretty well so far. I, it certainly resonates really strongly with me. I think it would like double underline the point you made about having people who understand the, the use case for the data. What are you trying to learn? What are you trying to accomplish? Right. And how deeply that informs the type of preparation and cleaning work you need to do versus that the work that you could do, but you don't because it's it's right now, it, you know, you'll do it in the future when you need it for a different question, but you don't need it yet. Um, and interesting, I see that as also sometimes a failure case for these uh, tools that attempt to be more automated, which is how can you automate something if you don't understand what the the use case will be you you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes along the way um so so thanks for bringing that point too <laughs> yeah if i could add one thing to that uh a lot of times with these you know a data analysis project regardless of whatever it is it's it's like it's a process of exploration you might have a set of questions you need to answer right this stakeholder is needing these five questions answered or they need this prediction of the data or, or something but a good analyst, when they start digging in, are going to help that person understand the questions that they should be asking, mm-hmm. but they didn't. And that is like when you find someone who can who can understand that world and say, okay, yes, I answered your questions, but here's four other things I found in here that I think would probably be valuable. That's a person that one, I want on my team, but two, mm-hmm. I don't want to bog them down with a bunch of other stuff. I want them in the data deeply every day doing what they enjoy doing, um, which is where the, you know, no code, low code stuff comes into play. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe building on some of that, that perspective on, on low, no code tools, you know, you know, we often here on the podcast talk in depth on various aspects of data management. And so I'm wondering, you know, particularly maybe in conversations with your customers, how do you make some of these concepts more accessible to people who may not be as well versed in data? 
And we're not even necessarily talking about, you know, tool use, but even just yeah. understanding kind of the, the structure and organizational issues that you alluded to earlier. Right. That's a good question. I think, uh, gosh, like, okay. So there's like the political side of it, right? Which is, Hey, I'm the marketing person. Um, I get reports out of my tools or I get a, a, a PowerPoint deck from my agency with all the money I spent, but I don't know. I just know like my clicks and impressions and how much I'm spending. My question to that always is, okay, well, you, do you understand like the actual business impact of that spend? So if you spend a million dollars, you would expect a return on that investment, right? Of whatever your X is. So 4X, 5X, whatever. Do you understand that? The answer is always no. Like, no, I don't, I don't know that. Or yeah, we're, you know, we know that for e-commerce because we can directly track the click to the, to the sale, which also isn't actually, you know, that great. Um, so I start by asking those types of questions, just asking how, you know, how are we understanding? I spend this money, what's actually happening. And then that generally leads into a discussion of that. It's not that difficult. And like I said at the beginning, the scientific method is there for a reason. And it's a really good way to think about life in general. And you don't ne always need these super complex systems or even really like machine learning algorithms to do simple testing. Mm -hmm. I have saved clients millions of dollars just by simple holdout group testing across the country. We figure out things that you never would have known. And unfortunately, um, and this is sometimes hard for, for people to grasp depending on where they are in the marketing world, but there is zero incentive for a marketing industry player to help you understand waste. Because if you understand how much money is being wasted, you might not spend that money. They make all their money by how much you spend. So like I have to I have to be the unbiased independent person that comes in and you know hey I don't care if you spend a million dollars or $1 just here's reality. And so I just do it by questioning. And then you know you talk about politics and all the stuff that goes into that but uh depending on the size of the organization you just have to work through those those challenges. So what would you say are the biggest sort of changes in the last few years in this space? You know, what's, what's kind of the bleeding edge uh, problem that you're running into? Uh, I think um, I might get on a little bit of a soapbox here, but I think that everyone talking about machine learning is a big challenge right now. Like anytime someone brings up machine learning, it seems like it's always in the vein of, hey, we need to be doing machine learning. How do we do that? And really the question is, okay, I have a problem. The question should be is I have some problem where predicting the future would be helpful. That might be an application for machine learning. That's really how it should be done. But we have a lot. And again, I'm going to stay kind of in the marketing realm. There are a ton of platforms out there in the marketing industry that you can buy that claim all these amazing benefits of machine learning. And they do all this stuff with machine learning and AI and then sometimes you get into these things, you find out that this isn't AI. This is just a set of rules or this is a some really simple math or this isn't any of those things. It's just kind of packaged up to look like that. And so there is so much hype in this industry because machine learning is the hot topic in marketing right now. And uh, 
I think that's the the newest, like in the past few years, that's the thing that's really got people's mindset. I think there's a lot of smart people out there who are doing the right things, but I think there's some that aren't. And um, maybe they've convinced themselves that what they're doing is this this really advanced AI stuff. And maybe they haven't. I don't know their motive. Um, but on top of that, on the on the brighter side of the machine learning spectrum, I do think the stuff that is coming out around automated machine learning is going to be a really good thing. It's going to put actual ML algorithms and some of the uh, requirements on running those into the hands of more normal people, right? And when I say normal people, I mean like not people like me. You could take a, it's similar to what's happened in the data management space where we have some really great pieces of technology that can make it so a, a marketing analyst can handle their own pipelines, right? They can clean data and organize it. I think that is coming for the machine learning space. And most of my experience is with the Google Auto ML product, um, but I know Amazon has a version. Microsoft, I think, has a version. And there's other uh, individual players in this space. But Google Auto ML is really slick. And I have built some really interesting models on that platform that performed very well on really complex data sources. And so as that stuff continues to be developed, I think we will get to a world where a, potentially someone who's not a machine learning engineer or even a data science is hard to define. A data scientist is really hard to define, but not a data scientist could, with a little bit of education, start building machine learning models that perform well. And I like I think that will produce a lot of really interesting things. It'll open up a whole new set of problems. But um, yeah, I'd say that's the the, the newest stuff um, that I run into the most. Yeah, I'm a strong believer that the skills of model assessment, um, you know, skepticism um, and, you know, monitoring, you know, as distribution shift over time, et cetera, going to be extremely important in part because of the, the trends that you're summarizing. Yes, absolutely. And that, and that is a problem that's been in data for a long time. There's oh, yeah. all kinds of all kinds of inaccurate reports out there and analyses where someone thinks the data meant something and it really didn't mean that we're going to have those same, we already have those problems in machine learning, but they will be growing. And then, and then of course, looping back to it, your, the, the greatness of your model may be, may be meaningless if the, the data coming in is, is not what you thought it was. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. So returning to that uh, data wrangling front, uh, can you share with us a favorite data wrangling story anecdote that uh, our listeners might enjoy? Yeah, um, this is uh, this one for whatever reason always sticks in my mind. So we were I was bringing on a new client. This was a, a very large, um, uh, very large company in the U.S. Uh, lots and lots of locations across the country. Millions. Uh, billions of dollars uh, in revenue every year. And we were going to be processing all of the point of sale data for all of their locations and then all their marketing stuff and everything and doing some uh, prediction on that data. Uh, they had not ever really transferred that size of data to a company like us before. Um, and so, and it was billions and billions of rows. I mean, we're not talking about a few Excel files. This stuff was, uh, hundreds of CSV files that were being transferred on a uh, on a uh, uh, Azure bucket and um, an Azure blob, and so, anyways, uh, we 
set up the process with the the data people inside the corporate entity. Um, we figured out all the requirements of the data that we wanted to to get every day. Um, and they started processing the data and I'm not trying to plug Trifacta, but we actually used Trifacta, uh, to ingest, uh, the files. And what we found is we had, we kept running into delimiter issues, right? So it was supposed to be a, a comma delimited file, really simple, but it was a lot of data and it was pretty complex data. It was a wide data set and, you know, commas we're causing all types of problems. And so we would find a problem. We would tell them about it. And this is a large company. This is not some small company. And these people knew what they were doing from a data perspective. But before we had ever ingested data into BigQuery, which is what, what my preference is to use, we had identified delimiter issues in the files we were receiving. So we go, they go fix those delimiter issues. We get new files. We find more delimiter issues because you know the first one is never the last one, and you find it on new columns. And um, as you process more data, you start to find them. And we finally landed on a pipe delimiter, and uh, that so far for a year now has been working pretty well. But that is a good example because what what would have happened before is I would have taken those CSVs, ingested them into BigQuery. The job may or may not have failed. Um, and if it failed, then I've really got a problem because now I have to like go figure out why it failed. Cause at, at the time, BigQuery wasn't great about telling you why. Um, and I don't even know if it is today, but, and then it is assuming it didn't fail. I just ingested everything as a string or something and went and tried to clean it all up with, with code. Then like I've got so much time invested in this thing. And then we flipped the delimiter and we got all kinds of, you know, it's just a really inefficient process. Literally this was, I can't remember what the first files were. It was several hundreds of millions of rows of data. It was identified in like probably 10 minutes, however long it took Trifacta to process the files. And we found the issue and we were able to work back and forth. And we went around and around on that like two or three times before we finally figured it out the right file structure, but that is like, you do that one time, it's interesting, but you think about that happens all the time, right? So if my process is I'm not using a tool to make that process more efficient and I'm using the old ways of doing it, that's hours and hours and hours and hours of time gone, where now it's just a few minutes and uh, we can move on. And really it didn't require someone like me to do it. It could have been anyone on my team who could have handled that process, which to me is, is the biggest benefit of something like that. I love that anecdote. Um, Cause I've lived it. Right. And <laughs> we've all been the way that stuff manifests, you know, you'll be like, Oh, you know what? Row 1742 column 57 is a hundred megabytes and everything else in that column is 12 kilobytes. Right. And you know, if you've got the right interface, the right detectors in your tool, that stuff just pops and it's totally obvious. Yeah. And if you're just sitting at a console writing Python or SQL, you have no idea what's going on, right? Like right. Um, super frustrating. So I, I love that example. And of course, you brought us down like deep into the muck with, you know, delimiters. Why did you have CSVs in the first place? You promised us this is a high tech organization. So awesome. They believe in this. But but, you know, like these problems happen and they happen for all kinds of reasons. Um, and people who think that it's like all about technology to, to like really write fancy code, they just get their eyes off the data. Um, yeah. and, and I learned this from Jeff as much as anyone, like having your eyes on the data all the time 
um, just allows you to see stuff. You're, you're really good at pattern matching crazy stuff. And of course, you can codify some of that in tools too. You look for outliers and you pop them up and put in front of people's eyes and you say, does that look right? Because it's weird. Mm -hmm. um, so thanks for bringing that up. That's like, right, gets me in the heart. <laughs> good. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's for whatever reason, that one has stuck with me. So, yeah. Well, we also like to go beyond data from time to time here on the podcast. Do you have a favorite fun fact that, you know, about yourself or anything else that you'd like to share? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know. I'm a, a youth sports coach. So I tell people this a lot. Like people ask for personal thing. You know, what do you do in your free time? And I've got three kids, so there's not a lot of free time. But I also <laughs> coach, I coach uh, a couple softball teams. Uh, I coach basketball every year. I coach football every year. And it's a lot of like head banging against the wall trying to teach a 10-year-old how to throw a baseball or a softball. But I think it makes me better in the business world because you learn how to deal with adversity and it's a good leadership, you know, characteristic grower. But yeah, I'd say that's probably the, uh, at least in my life right now where I'm at, my kids are all under 11 years old. Uh, it's youth sports coach. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great having you on the podcast. Again, folks, we've been talking to Zach Pike of Magnetic Data Science. If you have a question or a topic you'd like us to tackle, reach out to us at datawranglers at trifacta.com. And as always, make sure to review and subscribe to the Data Wranglers wherever you find your podcasts. The Data Wranglers podcast is brought to you by Trifacta, the data engineering cloud. So on behalf of Joe Hellerstein and the whole team, thanks for listening. I'm Jeff Hare. See you next time.